Yo-ho-ho, I be Captain Chestbeard, and this be a special episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. In this 28th episode, SPJ, that shark bait, couldn't be with us here. But no worries, because we were able to hornswoggle Matt Lees of Shut Up and Sit Down to be our guest host. <laughs> However, that land number Sean couldn't be with us either. You see, Matt Lees be from the faraway magical isle of England. And in this mythical place of biscuit eaters and chips, there be a time zone difference between there and here in America. And the weight of the time difference be too great for the jellyfish-like bones of Sean McCoy. He be in bed on his big soft pillow, resting himself in hopes that he can wake up to be a man, a true sailor of the podcasting seas. All there be left on this wee ship of three be me, Matt Lees, and Alan Gearding. Join us as we discuss such topics as gay marriage, video games, how Matt Lees was able to swindle his way in to shut up and sit down, and of course, tabletop games. <laughs> so let's set sail, weigh anchor, and hoist the mizzen on this 28th episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. Gear! Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Podcast. Uh, today hosted by me, guest host, Matt Lees. <laughs> it's so exciting. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm Alan Gerding from Cleveland, Ohio, one half of Two Rooms and a Boom. I'm just really excited to have you on the show, Matt. This is really cool. A uh, pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Man, I, I feel like for the intro, we should uh, just talk about you, maybe get your business card. You know what? Let me crush on you a little bit. I don't want to start off by making you feel awkward, but I'm going to crush on you because I'm a fan, and I don't know how that feels for you. Huge fan of Shut Up and Sit Down, and I remember the opener and watching the opener, and really excited when you joined Quinn's and Paul. I remember being really excited when you agreed to guest host, and I told my wife, and she said, what does he look like? He sounds like he's attractive, <laughs> which is weird for my wife. Again, again, it's probably make you feel awkward. I'm like, well, I'll show you. And so I showed her one of your videos, and this is what she said, and I'm not sure how you react to this. It, says, it looks like Bob Dylan and Sean Penn had a child. That's a good one. Sean Penn is a is a, an element I've not heard before, actually. But you've heard Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan a few times, particularly because uh, years ago when I was at university, I used to have a very large amount of curly hair, and I did I did look a lot like Bob Dylan when I was younger. <laughs> and the funny thing is, my response to that was, no, he looks like Matt Lee's because <laughs> Bob Dylan and Sean Penn, they've got nothing on him, and it's weird <laughs> in this like microcosm world that we live in of tabletop games it's, you know we have celebrities within them it's it's fascinating that the celebrities within the industry are bigger celebrities than bob dylan and sean penn sincerely 
Really wow. excited. Yeah, yeah. It's a pleasure. I, I always find it weird. I, I cannot get my head around the idea. There is because uh, in my head, that's still as it always has been. That there are people who I think are amazing and I freak out about, but I can never understand or appreciate the idea of it that be that it being that about me. If that makes sense, because it's like my brain just goes, <laughs> "No, don't be silly." Like it just it doesn't fit. But it's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, similar experience. Probably not at the same level because. Psh- Two rooms in a boom, but having people come up and say, oh, I love two rooms in a boom. When does that stop is a good question. Like, I'm sure he gets sick of people coming up to him and, and fanning on him. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. At what point are you actually celebrity or a micro celebrity? I don't know. You know, it's really fun being a kind of internet celebrity, I think, because um, I, you kind of get to still have some of the fun of that, um, but not often. And I've talked about this a few times, but it's it's great once a year just to go to something like, you know, go to um, these conventions two or three times a year and um, and have people recognize you all the time. And that's so great because it's, it's really cool to meet people who like what you do. And it's, it's very affirming, especially if you spend most of your life sitting in front of a computer making things on your own. It's lovely. But at the same time, like it's also exhausting. It takes a lot from you. But it's that thing of, you know, where's the cutoff point? You don't you don't want to be the person, the last person who talks to you out there. You don't want to be rude to one person just because you've talked to 99 other people. So right. it's, it's really, really good fun and really life affirming. But I think if it happened every day, it would be hell. But the nice thing is you can be like super well known within a small niche. But then generally, you know, I live in London. I can walk around London and you know it's very rare that anyone recognizes me. Uh, so it's nice. I can still live a normal human life <laughs> yeah except when you go to conventions and everyone and their neighbor's pet dog walk up to you and like hey hey because then you're within the industry yeah and it's it's kind of weird you know and i i, I crucially like things like tabletop in the past i never really used to understand like when people used to have so many people doing things for them um in terms of like you know tabletop obviously has a big crew it has all the fancy cameras and lights and sound people and camera people and all that stuff. And I think because I've always come from a perspective of not really having a lot of uh, resources available to me and having to just basically do it myself, either because I didn't have money or I didn't have friends who would help me make things I wanted to make. So I just thought, well, screw this. I'm just going to make stuff on my own. So I've become very self-sufficient in terms of that stuff. But at the same time, I do now get it a lot more, especially, you know, people like Will Wheaton. Obviously, he's really famous from like he was in a he was in a science fiction television series, you might know. Yeah, you just can't be doing that. I think it's that weird thing of if you are going to go and, and be at things and be a person, then you become a bit less able to actually do your other jobs. I mean, this interesting thing we found at Gen Con last year, we were making a video and going around trying to play games and trying to talk to people. And I think this year we're not even going to make a, a kind of Gen Con special video, partly because we kind of feel like we've done it. Like we've done two of them. We feel like well, there's not a lot more to say or do on that front. They were hilarious, by the way. Fantastic. Thanks. We had a lot of fun with them, and especially last year's one. We just thought, you know what, we're just going to make it funny. And that, that was the only thing. But it's weird. Like, you, it's really hard to do your job when you're also doing the job of being a person that people want to talk to, especially when you're the guy, like, trying to sort out the camera. It's this weird thing of, like, you're going through and carefully trying to tweak all of the settings on the camera so the filming works properly and looks good, uh, whilst you've got people wanting to talk to you. And it's like, you don't want to say, sorry, can you leave me alone? I'm doing my job. But it's, it's weird how, like, I think this happens with every job you have, whether you work in an office and then become, like, a manager, uh, or whether you work on the internet making videos and then become, like, a figure, a well-known person. It's this weird thing of technically you're you're being promoted in a way. Technically you're going up, but also it's strange in the fact your job is changing. Like what your job is is not the same as what it was. So it's kind of a fascinating. So you actually live within London? Yeah. I do, which is bizarre. Um, I'm very lucky. My um, my partner has a flat here, uh, so I'm basically kind of able to keep living in London at not kind of utterly destructive cost. So it's it's nice living in London. I don't really take advantage of it as much as I should, to be honest, because I very rarely 
go into London. <laughs> I just live uh, in Zone 3, which is reasonably close, but not that close. I mostly just spend all of my time inside making videos. Well, I know the topic of our episode is who is Matt Lees? I think most people listening to this probably know who you are, but for those of you that are not, are you ready to dive in deeper to who is Matt Lees? You're going to demand that I show you birth certificates and stuff. <laughs> You know, we have that in America with presidents. And I know, I know. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Yeah. I'm not sure how savvy you are, because if you ask me about prime ministers, I know. Which is, have you seen the thing where they've had people from America fill out the countries of Europe, but then they had people from Europe fill out the states in America? And yeah. it's hilarious if you see it. I think it's a, a thing in the UK. I think we definitely follow American politics a lot more closely than maybe you guys follow English politics, probably because English politics don't really matter to you. Whereas I guess um, increasingly we've always felt like we're somehow attached to America via some sort of umbilical cord, really, probably because of all of the wars we've collaborated in. And so is this thing of like, we're always just like, oh, God, they're so big and possibly really dangerous. So we kind of have <laughs> A weird vested interest in being like, fuck, what are they going to do this time? Fuck. Right. It's like of mice and men yeah. <laughs> with Lenny walking around. Absolutely. And I think because I've got more people I know in America now, I know people like yourself. I have people on Facebook and stuff, lots of Americans from their industry stuff, maybe from games industry stuff. I find it really fascinating to read the things they're posting. And uh, yeah, I, I follow American politics like really closely at the moment. I don't know why. It's probably pointless for me. But hey. <laughs> All right. Let's get into this then. Excuse me, Sam, do you have the time? But of course, it be topic time. First, what I'd like you to do, if you would, sir, give me your business card. What is your audio business card? Oh, God, what do I do? You see, I specifically made business cards recently because I struggle so much to explain what I do that I find it easier to just point to a picture of a big a big white S on an orange background and then a picture of a little ghost on a pink background and just say, just look at my websites. The reality is you do a lot. Yeah. I know that there's actually some confusion there, and I'm hoping we can clear it up. Sure. You see, the funny thing is I don't think of myself as doing a lot. I think of myself as right now possibly working less hard than I've ever worked in my life. But I nice. do still do an awful lot of stuff. Yeah, I work with Shut Up and Sit Down quite a lot. Um, I work with Quinns and Paul on the site. And I also work with Quinns quite closely on a, well, very closely, it's just me and him, on a newer thing called Cool Ghosts, which is kind of an extension of what my previous full-time job was, which was basically making YouTube videos about video games. Yeah, now those are the two main things I do. And it tends to be that Quinns uh, does more work on Shut Up and Sit Down in terms of the day-to-day -day running and content. And I do more work on Cool Ghosts. And uh, we just sort of beat up once a week and, and get stuff done and um that's a, a fun system and it, it keeps us from kind of burning out on either you know because i think if you're just too 100 uh, focused on just board games or just video games it's easy to just get a bit bored so i think having that palate cleanser and jumping between the two is really healthy it keeps both sites really fresh and energetic and i also run uh well i work with a I do a podcast called regular features which it used to be just incredibly filthy actually like it's funny the early episodes are just absolutely wrong in so many regards whereas now we've kind of it's kind of changed a bit it's more like uh i guess it's more comedy now rather than shock comedy a bit more on the side of whimsy so we do that and it's one of these lucky situations really where i spent a lot of time doing these things as hobbies really um all of the things i do now are kind of hobbies um that have just become my job 
Um, and I'm able to kind of earn a bit of money from all of them. Yeah, so I'm very busy with lots of different things, but those are the main three things. Well, the good news is this does have the explicit label, so you don't have to hold your tongue at all. I know that I'm from Cleveland and considered the place in America that swears the most. We got rated <laughs> that. Yeah, it's the gem of America. Swearing is a funny thing. We don't actually do it on Shut Up and Sit Down um, because lots of people have fairly said, come on, guys, these are board games. I want to watch these videos with my family. And we're like, yeah, right, of fair course. Fair enough. But it is interesting that, like, uh, swearing does mean different things to uh, different people and, and definitely creating things on the internet. I used to swear constantly all the time. And it's this strange thing of when you are creating for a uh, international audience. Yeah, you know, you do have to start being mindful of that. You don't think about it. It's like there are certain swear words, for example, which are incredibly common in the UK and you wouldn't think are a big deal that are so offensive in America. And uh, yeah, you start to get a taste for that. And at first it's weird because you're just like, really? People are that offended by that? Really? So it's kind of eye-opening and educational. But hey. It, I think it depends on the people. Depends on the taste. Sure. As weird as it sounds, I feel very comforted when I hear someone use profanity because it means that there's less of a barrier there. Oh, you're feeling more comfortable because you're assuming I'm comfortable with your swearing. That is, of course, unless they're just swearing right at me. Yeah, sure. I just want to recap this. You basically have two different entities. The Cool Ghost, which mm -hmm. is the video game side of things. Yeah. And there's Shut Up and Sit Down, which is the tabletop side of things. Yep. And do you think those two parallel one one another really well? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of crossover. We find that a lot of the people who, who really love Cool Ghosts are people who love Shut Up and Sit Down as well. It's kind of about having missions, I think. I think both me and Quentin Smith, like one of the reasons when I first met him that we kind of hit it off is we're both very driven people. And it's not purely a drive that's... What's the word? It's not purely ambition. There is ambition there, but it's not traditional ambition. It's not like, you know, I want to be a big success and be learning loads of money. I want to be rich. Yeah, we want to achieve things. And certainly, you know, now one of the things we are trying to achieve more is how can we how can we do this and maybe get older, <laughs> which is a, right. is a question mark, which does start to have boring answers. But what Quinns and Paul set out to do was they, you know, he started playing board games. He discovered that board games were just amazing. And it was this sort of weird hidden secret. And he looked online to see where he could find out about these things and found that really all of the places covering board games were incredibly dry and incredibly just treating them like very much in the same way that often video game reviews of the 80s and 90s of having like very dry breakdowns of components and, and right. systems and, and having none of the passion conveyed of why these things were exciting. Now, obviously, Quinns have come from a background of, uh, of video game writing, which had kind of been invigorated in the late 90s, early 2000s by this sort of new idea of talking about experience and talk conveying what, you know, what it's about, how it feels. You know, that, a lot of Kieran Gillen's new games journalism uh, thing you might have heard a bit about and that was that was the yeah. idea of it being like writing as if you are there and it, you know it was it was feisty and it was a bit pretentious and I think a lot of that idea really hasn't stuck but it, there was there was elements of that which did and I wasn't even actually formally aware of that kind of manifesto at the time at all but um, obviously the the waterfall effect of it had trickled down to me and when I wrote about games I always very wrote, very much wrote about how it felt to be there how it felt to be doing right so the one thing that i love is that when i listen to your reviews or when i listen to your podcast daft souls or shut up and sit down it's one of those things where it's definitely matt lee's experience i feel that the the relationship and this is probably why the fan base is it's one-sided but it feels like it's two-sided like oh yeah matt lee's my friend because i totally know what it's like to sit down and play a game with him but yeah, wait, I guess so. I've never actually played a game with you. I guess I do try and I, I always just try and honestly convey how I feel about stuff um, and how it makes me feel. But I think also like there's the degree where where you become a, a kind of critic and, and do that is being able to have 
being able to have enough assurance in what it does feel like to do this that you can tell people like you can sit down with this and you will feel like this and you know you can you're never going to be 100 right about that there are always some people who don't feel that but i think if you can just be sure enough that somebody's going to have the same experience as you then that is that is the job as a critic is basically saying right you should check this out it's going to make you feel like this and really explaining that exactly and having the kind of confidence to do that um so i think that's what i learned from from games writing i think that was my editor helped me a lot with that i'd be like oh this game made me feel like this he's like well you should you shouldn't say this made me feel like this you should say you're gonna feel like this if you don't have the confidence to say that then maybe don't say it at all if you don't have the confidence to uh, to be sure that this experience is gonna communicate to people then maybe just maybe don't write it that editing process was it was a big part but anyway it was this thing of like Quinns wanted to make a website which made board games as exciting and accessible as he felt they should be because, you know, he wanted these exciting, cool games to be played by people and not just, you know, by a very small subset of right. very traditional geeky yeah. gamers. And <laughs> that was his mission. And I thought that was a really cool mission, especially because I just started getting into board games as well. It's all about this sort of taking on impossible challenges. And Cool Ghost is another one in the fact that it's like, well, can we make a website about video games that is as positive and fun as video games deserve? Um, just because there's so much of video games is bogged down by acerbic communities and pointless fixations and arguments and what? it's just are you saying video games are contentious? Uh, yeah. But then I, I realized increasingly, actually, that there's a lot of problems in traditional gaming and board gaming and, and other sorts of things. There's, there's a lot of these yeah. same issues are there as well. They're perhaps just not as prevalent on the internet. In fact, let me ask you some hard questions. Speaking sure. Of being confident, I should be confident to ask you the tough questions. <laughs> you can. You can ask me anything. All right. So, bad players and tabletop. Have you ever had to clear the board or flip the table have you ever succumbed to the anger of a tabletop game oh i don't know i mean possibly when i was younger but i don't think so as a mature adult you've never gone well forget this game because no one's playing it now and swept the table you know i really feel for a lot of people actually we, we often have people when we're reviewing stuff and they say oh you know i try this with my my group and some of the stuff that people say i find it quite upsetting just because people will often say things like you know oh i tried this with my group and we got two rounds in and everyone said it was boring and then we stopped and i'm just like what like i don't know i just feel like that's sad and it's one of those things where i feel like i'm i'm very lucky to have the friends i do in terms of who I can play games with right. because I just think that's just so rude and I just I can't believe it if somebody wants to do something and then everyone else just once you start doing it goes no we're not doing this anymore I'm like whoa that's like a big thing to do unless it's like you're really uncomfortable with a game or something you know for whatever reason then I just think there's no real excuse for that and other people saying you know it's they find it difficult because uh, they have friends who just like one specific type of game and then when everything is like you know if it's not a Euro game or if it's not this sort of thing then they just don't want to play it right I think I think I forget that sometimes. I'm quite lucky that I have a group of versatile friends. Versatile taste and versatile friends. Yeah, I think that the people I play games with are usually the same sort of people as me. Of the mechanics and how it works and how it's all tied together it doesn't matter. It's it's all about the experience of having a fun time with with yeah. other people. Yeah. And I think I mean in some regards I think I sometimes need to remember that not all people are like that and some game groups are not that versatile. 
But at the same time, I think, well, no, I shouldn't forget that because I think that's what everyone should aspire for. And I just find it a bit sad when people say, oh, what do you do when this happens? And I just think, oh, you've got, you're stuck with some people who are not ideal for playing games with. And I, I, I kind of feel very lucky that I don't yeah. have any problem friends like that, you know? As you should, because as a game designer and game publisher, my main thing that I really want to do with Tuesday Night Games is I always want to make games that simply facilitate the good time with friends and doesn't garner bad blood. So even if you have someone who's in between the good player and the bad player, it garners them towards a better player than worse player. For instance, like Two Rooms in a Boom, we made this specifically because there were so many bad experiences or angry experiences with the resistance or even werewolf. How can we get it so that even if you lose the game, you feel that you're closer to to people having played it. Two Rooms in a Boom, we really tried to design this game that was more of a cooperative game than not. And even our new game that's coming out, World Championship Russian Roulette, and this is me shamelessly kind of plugging it in as well, is it's it's a little bit of a take that game, which we, it's more me than Sean, I'll just be totally honest, because I host games all the time and I get very non-players there. So I want to make sure that they have they have fun, but I made sure that there's cards that weren't as much take that as, hey, we're working together. For instance, there's an action that says, hey, you get a bonus, but then you have to choose someone to share that bonus with. And that way it's like, ah, yeah, look at this. We're friends and we got to maybe gang up on the person who's winning. Uh Oh, they're not winning anymore. So now we got to work together. So anyways, it's all about garnering that good feeling sure i think that's why um for a long time and it sort of still is in in many regards cosmic encounter remains one of my favorite games just because of the fact that like it is brutal and it is like that people just get really hit hard and fast quite quickly but then what i love about it is you can be having a massive love-in with somebody but then you have to attack them and then or like you can have a massive feud with somebody and then but then this turn it's it's better for you to to actually help them. It's nice in the fact that you still get that kind of those moments of being like, you bastard and having people being really kind of angry and at each other's throats sometimes and getting really into it. But just at the point where that might become a problem, where it might sort of sour the room, it will get flipped on its head because suddenly it's like, oh, actually they're winning now, so you have to attack them. Or actually now you have to attack. It's it's kind of enough of a roller coaster. I think a lot of people don't like that because they feel like that's a random element of it being like there's no structure to the game in terms of um, how that works and it is just very much a kind of a crapshoot of just get everyone getting to the finish line and then trying to be the person who gets over it first but i think that's fine i think there's a lot of strategy to that to just constantly having yourself in the best position to just squeak past the finish line right in the smartest way you can don't let people know that you're winning yeah absolutely and it is it is like again it's a great social game because it's socially balanced and really the game of of cosmic is all about trying to convince the other players that you're not going to (laughs) win that's what it is you just have to appear to be as useless as possible whilst also being as fiendish as possible yeah the metagame of it is definitely just talking yourself down like guys don't worry about me but chadley over there look at chadley (laughs) sure i consume matter and destroy it but i mean i'm i'm probably not that much of a threat like I love it. But let's get even deeper, shall we? You said I could ask you anything. I I know when it comes to designing a game, you could potentially make some money because it's well known there's not a lot of money in the tabletop industry. No. Because you can make some money publishing a game and you can make a little bit less if you're a designer of a game. As a board game reviewer, it seems that it would be tough to actually make money doing that. But this is your job, you said. You've turned your hobby into the job. So two questions. Sure. How is someone able to stay afloat with that? And this is also a way you can shamelessly plug people to help you out if that's what you guys are looking for. And then also, do you think that it's tainted your love for the hobby at all now that it's work? 
That's interesting. I'll start with the second one first, I guess. I, I don't think it has. And what's interesting is I came into it quite late. And sometimes I feel a bit guilty because there's loads of classic board games, like things that are considered to be like really formative or really mainstream and known. I just haven't played a lot of them. And there's a lot of holes in my knowledge and stuff. But I have to remind myself that that's okay. Because really, one of the main reasons that Quinn's and Paul got me involved is because I had the right spirit and I had the right eye for design. Like, you know, I've been a design-based critic for years. Like, I've done video games for yonks. You can put something in front of me and I'll tell you whether or not it's good. I, I can do that. But I don't know a lot about things. So for me, it's kind of interesting how like I came into it from the perspective of being like interested in game design and interested in um, not as a board gamer. So I think like obviously Paul and Quinn's have been playing board games for a long, long time. And Quinn's is like a fountain of knowledge. It's amazing. Like you can just ask him questions about stuff and he just knows so much stuff. It just never ceases to amaze me. Uh, whereas I'm kind of like that with video games. Like I have a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of the industry on that front. With board games, I'm still just kind of like a bit of an idiot. I pretty much, <laughs> when I got into it, and then when I started doing it for Shove and Sit Down, was roughly the same time. It was pretty much like when I first met Quinns, he was like, oh yeah, I'm doing this board game thing. And I was like, huh, I want to do more videos about stuff. I was working for Xbox Magazine at that time, and I wasn't really allowed to do anything about video games uh, outside of my job, because that would have been a conflict to my contract, etc. But board games would be fine. And I was like, oh hey, I want to have more experience doing video, so I'm like, maybe I could do some video stuff with you. And then I looked into it and I was like, oh my God, like this, this guy has the exact same sense of humor in videos as I do pretty much. Yeah. He sent me some stuff to review and I made some video reviews and then I just sort of very start, slowly started working with them more and more. So for me, it's weird. In fact, that it's rather than it being this lifelong hobby that I then became a career, it's yeah. for me kind of like the hobby and the career kind of came together at once. Which I guess that's an interesting thing, and I think will probably actually aggravate quite a lot of people. I think there'll probably be some people listening now going, what the fuck, like, this isn't fair. And I get that, but I think also one of the reasons it's useful is it's kind of always good for me to have that kind of outsider perspective, you know? I can not be too bogged down with, with knowing everything, which sometimes can be, especially if you're trying to communicate with people who don't know that much about the hobby, that can actually be a barrier sometimes, and having to take your, keep your, your mind in that mindset of, of not knowing much. And it's interesting the fact that increasingly that will go. Over the past few years, I've played loads more games. I know more about games and there will come a point where that will no longer be served by me in a way of having that kind of new yeah. impetus and so it means when we do eventually which you know hopefully we will get somebody else on board as well to work with us we'll probably want to do the same thing again of like when I, when it gets to the point when I know too much we'll get somebody fresh in it's kind of cool because it means it's weird for me because it's not like I've been following this for 20 years and now it's my job and it takes right. some of the joy out of it it's more like I'm still learning about it. Like, I'm still excited. Let me interrupt you and give you a pop quiz then. I will tell you some, oh, like, archetypical <laughs> games. Okay. All you're going to have to say is played it or haven't played it. Oh, yeah, this is going to be embarrassing. I'm going to get killed, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. going to be fantastic. So this is it. All right. Dominion. I've not played it. Oh, my. I know. Well, and you know, actually, this thing I was going to say is I'm, I'm going to try and hopefully play it. But it's like, it's almost intimidating at this point when there's so many expansions and stuff. You thought, like, right, yeah, yeah. Do I, Don't worry about that. Do I start? Just keep on muscling through this, though. Let's keep on muscling okay. through. So have you played any deck builders? Star Realms? You know, I re that's the thing. I just recently got into deck builders. I played Star Realms and I thought it was fucking amazing. And I, I, I'd seen that it's mechanic, great. like deck building mechanic in other stuff before. Right. But Star Realms is just so neat and tidy. I just played it with my brother for like a whole day and we just kept being being like, do you want to play again? And he's like, yeah. And we play like Settlers nine games of in a row. Catan. Settlers, no. <laughs> Amazing. What about Carcassonne? No. Power Grid. No. Monopoly. 
Yes, it's awful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. So I originally asked you how you keep afloat, but you know what? Screw that first question, and maybe you'll answer it through this next one, because here's what I think I really want to know, and I think what a lot of listeners want to know, is basically the fairy tale story of your life. I don't know where to start. We'll start with like university and how you got in and how you actually met Quinn's and Paul. Sure. And how you were late entry. Like was the opener a totally separate show? Because you made it sound like Quinn's almost recruited you and says, hey, I like your stuff. Here's some board games. Why don't you start making videos? And I just want to hear about that. Sure. So if you can give a narrative art of Matt Lee's. Well, I guess um, when I was at university, I started uh, writing some video game reviews uh, on the side, and it was very much just one of those things where you just got to keep the game, and then you would probably sell the game, and then that was your payment. You know, it sucked, but that's kind of how a lot of it works, and probably how a lot of stuff still works. But, you know, I was pretty awful as a reviewer. My writing was terrible. I I read up some of that stuff recently, and it's just awful. Um, (laughs) I really couldn't write at all. But I did that for a while, and then... It was for a small, awful website called Dark Zero, which I think still exists somewhere. I'm not saying it's awful now. I'm just saying it was it was awful when I was doing it because, you know, I was doing awful things for it. Right. Anyway, <laughs> I got a chance to go to an industry thing. We thought it was going to be kind of a cool, like, games conference, but actually it was a very dry lecture based thing about industry stuff but it was interesting and i asked i just i just finished a psychology degree and i asked a question about gender in relation to playing habits the the guy on the panel didn't have time to answer the question but he said it was really interesting and to ask him about it afterwards i did that it turned out it was a really good question he offered me a job and then i worked in market research for two years where i did tons of stuff to do with the nintendo wii and the nintendo ds and trying to talk about casual gaming and how people who aren't really interested in games or don't have the vocabulary to talk about games think about them and what excites them. And that's something that has been useful for my whole career. Then I went into PR for a while. I did some PR for uh, European kind of stuff for Call of Duty and Guitar Hero and Activision stuff. It was mainly strategy. It wasn't really actually doing direct PR. It was more like coming across with big pan-European plans. And I was organizing stuff like Gamescom. And it was all like incredibly fiddly and Excel-based. And then I kind of just couldn't do that anymore because it was just burning me out. And I decided that I didn't want to be a boring business bastard. So I basically started teaching myself to write well. And I just wrote every day for about six months, uh, blogging about random rubbish, got some attention within the games industry. I wasn't writing about games at all. I was writing about other stuff. Most bizarre thing you wrote about? Oh, easy. I wrote a piece uh, called One in the Bank, I believe, which was a blog piece about the process of what it's like to donate sperm. And yeah, it was basically on the premise that I think the Sun newspaper in the UK had um, offered, it was like I got paid £200 to go and have a wank, basically. Nice. And I thought I thought the idea of being paid to go and have a wank was hilarious because um, one of my writer heroes as a, as a teenager was a guy called Charlie Brooker in the UK. I thought it was amazing. And there was a, a thing he wrote, which I think was called Wanking for Coins. <laughs> it was just and it was just it was a <laughs> tiny thing in another joke. But just just the, the phrase wanking for coins always made me really laugh. And so I wow. thought it'd be funny to do it. But I wrote a, a, a thing about that. And it was it was good. It was funny. You know, it isn't funny. This is actually a huge surprise you weren't expecting. I've got your son here. And he wanted to say hello because we had so, no, but go on. You were talking about we were having this narrative arc, and that was the most bizarre thing. So you that got attention bizarre. by writing your blog. Yeah, so you and got then, a new job. 
basically like I was writing funny stuff and it got noticed by people in the games industry and then there was a job at OXM and I got the job and that basically meant I sort of did pretty well to just go jump straight into games journalism basically at quite a at that point at quite a high level it wasn't like well paid or anything but it was hard to get more kind of access and prestige at that point than that which was great but then magazines were dying and uh, I started making videos at work we didn't really have any equipment and I didn't really have any experience but I, I made a couple of videos they went viral and I was sort of thinking ha this is cool uh, I then it was a, a game called Dragon's Dogma I made a video about it which was um, kind of trying to convey how exciting the game was and what it felt like to play it and I had this then thing of going, oh man, like maybe you don't have to be constantly critiquing stuff and ripping apart. Maybe you can just be like explaining why something is exciting and just getting behind things and showing people why things can be so much fun. And that was an idea I got really excited about and then largely didn't do anything with for about two or three years. <laughs> uh, but then I went, I got fed up with writing, magazines were fucked. So I got offered a job making video at a company called Video Gamer. They were looking for somebody to come in and basically do something with video. It was kind of a blank canvas. They had a YouTube channel with about 700, 800 subscribers. Nothing going on. They were really doing their best, but it just wasn't getting any traction. So I went in and they kind of just gave me the reins and let me do whatever I wanted. And I did. And I, I basically made a bunch of comedy stuff, mostly poking fun at the games industry. Did a few videos that went mega viral. And then off the back of that, actually did a TV show with Charlie Brooker, which was amazing. Because as I say, like yeah, he was just always very aspirational for me. I thought he was brilliant. Although I had spent years trying specifically not to write like Charlie Brooker, just because every single bloody games journalist who wants to be funny does that. So it was kind of surreal to go from being like spending years trying not to write exactly like somebody else to them being like, oh, now I have to write stuff that he might read. So it was actually weirdly reverse engineering my wow. brain. But yeah, it all kicked off and it was amazing. But at the same time, it kind of burnt me out in the process between then. I'd met Quinns when I was at OXM. We got chatting. We, Here we go. kind of just got on. Um, I didn't really know him very well, but I'd heard a lot about him. He was always known as the boy Quinns. <laughs> I don't know why. I think because he was younger than other people at some point. Anyway, I'd heard lots <laughs> of things about point. him. <laughs> And um, it was cool to meet him. But it was just one of these chance things. He was coming in to make something. I was making videos. And he was like, oh, cool. Yeah, like we make videos, etc." And then it was a case of I think we went and looked up each other's stuff and realized there was a lot of similarities. And then he kind of wanted to expand the site a little bit and get some kind of more people into it. Yeah, it was one of these weird things where I did I did a little review stuff for him. Basically, we had this process where I just remember we were just we just sat and, and chatted about what I did and what I could do. And he, he basically just said, like, oh, just show me what you've done. And he just started going through a bunch of stuff I'd done. And one of the things I'd done had been some like stupid cooking videos. And he basically said, yeah, why don't you make a show which is you reviewing a board game and then doing a recipe, doing some cooking. My mind's blown. This was all Quinn's idea. That's it was. It was just oh like, my goodness. he basically asked me to like show him stuff I'd done. And I basically just showed him stuff I'd done. And at the end went, oh yeah, here's me doing this cooking. And he's like, I love it. Are you as into cooking as it seems? Yeah, I love cooking. I really love it. And actually, I always get people asking me to do more recipe videos, but I'm a bit reticent as it because it's the, it's the one thing in my life which currently is, a, is something I'm really passionate about that isn't also my job. And I think right. it's probably a good idea to keep one thing like that separate and you, so you called these videos the opener yeah. yeah and we kind of had a lot of weird plans for the opener that never really came to fruition like i like the idea of it being like gradually realized that it was kind of a different parallel dimension and i was somehow like inside that box and that was a world and i was trapped in it and and it did exist and like the idea that we tried to allude to it by having the opener box in the background in some of the normal videos the idea that that was actually a world inside of it but as with lots of our crazy ongoing joke ideas, we right. just forgot to do it. <laughs> <laughs>
But yeah, no, it was one of those things where it was it was the most exciting commission I'd ever had because it was just so fucking silly of being like, yeah, review me games and do recipes. Now you and Quince were both living in London at this time. Yeah. Yes or no? Yeah, we we still both do. So this was a, a lot of face-to-face things that would happen because it seems that the two entities were totally separate. Like there was the opener and then there was shut up and sit down. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, are they starting to bring in Matt Lees? I'm not sure exactly what was going on. But then you started being in videos with them. Yeah, well, this was the thing is um, at this point, basically, most of the time they were filming in the week because it was sort of there. They were both freelance, but they did that as a job. So the thing was they were filming their reviews and playing games when I was at work because I still had jobs. So I was working a video gamer and they were doing stuff. And but I mean, I would then have this commission to do things like once a month or whatever. And I would do them on the weekends or whenever I had free time in the evenings, etc. And I'd still like sequence face to face and stuff. But we didn't really work together that closely because of because I had a job. And yeah, it was one of these things where I was kind of burnt out. Um, I've been doing all these like viral YouTube stuff. And I'd kind of been at the, the, the end of, of what it's like to actually the impact of that. Like, you know, when you are somebody getting millions of views on YouTube, it's it's fun, but it's also so not always that positive. You have to deal with people a lot more, and that can be very draining. Also, I was, you know, trying to work a full-time job whilst writing a TV show, and that just broke me. And so I kind of needed to slow down the pace of my life a bit. And also, I wanted to work more closely with Shut Up and Sit Down. Doing the opener was amazing. It was just because it was the weirdest and best commission I ever had. Then we'd launched the crowdfunding stuff with Shut Up and Sit Down. And obviously, you know, I had experience on kind of the more business side of things when I used to work with, you know, spreadsheets and stuff on organizations. So we were doing the gold club, uh, which we kind of had to kind of abandon, but it became all I was doing. But anyway, I was basically able to kind of provide a lot to the company at that point in terms of like, I had all these skills I hadn't used for a while, but I could bring out and I was doing more filming for them as well. Like, you know, I was, I was coming in. I've always been the person who's been much more like, no, things need to look nice and sound nice. And I've always been trying to yeah. prove the fidelity of everything I make. And I still do. I still just want everything to look slightly nicer each time. It would be a case of like, you know, when they have like Let's Play Galaxy Trucker or when we did the over uh, Overlord thing for Memoir 44, I filmed that and edited that. So I was working nice. behind the scenes a lot more. But it's funny how Quinn's has since got the bug and now like his quality of stuff is constantly, you know, really impressing me just because he wants to kind of things to look nicer and be nice. So he's good to challenge each other to be better. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I think he, he's uh, he's enjoys the fact that I'm there as a kind of resource, but also there as a kind of a benchmark for, for what he wants to try and beat. And I'm sure one day he will get better than I am at video, which will be terrifying. So when was the official moment of you are a part of what is now the trio and maybe now it's a quadro with Pip coming in? And nowadays when people say think shut up and sit down, on average, they think Quince, Paul, Matt Lee's. Yeah, I, I guess I, that's a weird one. Um, I remember when I found it strange the first time I went to Gen Con and would go out to events and stuff, I'd have people being like, oh, I love Shubs Down. And for a long time, I was kind of like, well, yeah, it's not really me. Like, it's these guys. Like, I'm just sort of, I do some stuff. So I guess in my head, I wasn't really a part of Shubs Sit Down for a long time, but I think lots of people thought that I was. But it wasn't, I kind of felt like I wasn't because I knew they put in loads of work and it was kind of their baby and people love them, right. you know? I guess now I, f- I feel very much more like I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm shut up and sit down. I, a lot of my heart is in it. I put a lot of work into it. Right. I'm not always in front of the scenes. Like a lot of time it's behind the scenes stuff, like stupid things like doing graphics work. So like we need this logo or whatever for this thing or Mac, can you do this crazy After Effects sequence for a video? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just 
pull stuff out of my ass. So an invisible crescendo into it then is what. Yeah, I think it saying. was. I guess the main point was when Paul moved to Canada because in the past it was like my videos were separate to theirs because because of time constraints. And then when yeah. I was free in the day, usually I would just be like, well, you know, it's you guys. People know you guys. I'll just film it. So I would right. just film. But then Paul was fed up with London. He wanted to move, and we kind of thought, well, look, you know, we run our own company. We can do what we want. We want Paul to be happy. So we're like, you should just go to Canada or something. Just go somewhere else in the world and you can carry on doing your job. But obviously that meant a dynamic shift had to happen. So now Paul makes video reviews on his own and me and Quinn's work on them together. And now I feel like much more like, yeah, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where sometimes we have people being like, oh, I miss Paul being in the reviews and stuff. It's like, yeah, fair enough. But like, you know, the guy was unhappy and he wanted to live somewhere else in the world. And it's, it's exciting and cool that we have enough control over our lives and company to, that we were able to facilitate whatever we need to do to make him happy. I think now it's, it's very much like I've kind of fully become a part of it. And I also feel like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's fun. The more I work with Quinns, we have started to find our own thing and find our own kind of feet in terms of back and forth. And I think the quality of the stuff we're doing at the moment is, is pretty cool. I'm excited about the future. Ticket to ride. <laughs> no. Uh, two rooms in a boom. Yeah, I've played that. Of course, you know that's I've all that matters. You know why I haven't played all these games, though? And the reason is so simple. It's because Quinns and Paul have played these things so long ago and so much that they're just not interested in playing them. And it means that most of the time when I'm playing games, I'm playing them with, with those guys, with Quinns. And, and he always wants to play stuff that he has to review or wants to play stuff that he's currently excited about. And so a lot of these games, he doesn't, they don't think they're bad. It's just that they have played them such a long time ago that they're not really interested in going back to them. And so the only way that that'll happen is if I just go out of my way to buy them all and then play them all but I haven't got that much cupboard space. In a way, it's that weird thing. I feel like I can play them anytime, but I, I don't. But right. I also feel like because there's so many of these old things I haven't played, at some point it'd be really cool to do a kind of weird video feature of me, just like my experience just playing them all for the first time. Um, so right. I kind of feel like now I've, I've actually been, this is the old magazine journalist in me of being like, well, no, if you've not done it now, don't just do it. Like if you're going to do it, like make it a thing, like make it, <laughs> Yeah, you <laughs> can make yeah. something out of it. So yeah. Make a whole weekend of just grinding out all of the classics to get that done yeah so captain chestbeard which is our time manager is showing me that we've been talking for a while but i do have some more burning questions sure. and some aren't for me so how about we try to do like a shotgun round yeah fine you ready for these i'm ready for everything howdy it's time for interaction satisfaction shoot us your emails your comments or your questions We'll do our best to answer them. Some of these are ridiculous, so don't spend too much time. Again, shotgun round. Here we go. Alex Erd says, How British are you? Enough. Tom Newton Dines asks, How many times have you actually told people to shut up and sit down? Never. I'm far too polite. Big fan of ours, and I apologize because I'm probably going to slaughter his name. Roloff Kongenenberg asks, what would you change about Two Rooms and a Boom, and why? Tricky. I think Two Rooms is one of those games which is like a recipe, where like to really get it right, you need to read the room and read the feel of what's going on and, and work out what combination of things is currently going to work. And I think if there was a way that there was somehow an app you could use or something where you could just be like, it has this many people and we want this level of difficulty, and you could just press some buttons and have it feed you a recipe that you think is just somehow that's going to work. That would be you cool. messing with me right now, or do you know about the app that we're working on? I didn't on? know about that, no. Oh, sweet. Yeah, we totally got an app that's going to do all that. We're working on it. Cool. Well, now it sounds like I'm, I'm just doing an advertorial segment with you. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, thanks for the advert, mate. Uh, <laughs> love it. All right, Joshua Gibbons, designer of the game Ice Fisher, asks, what is your opinion on Ice Fisher? 
Have you heard of it? I've never heard of it. But I mean, I've not played so many things, so it's fun. No, no, right? it's a joke game. It's a box of just cube, and you just take turns choosing a cube to pull out one of these white cubes, and one of those white cubes has a fish. God. William Anderson asks, and he's part of the B team, he says, uh, will you go on a date with William Anderson? I'm probably, I'm probably not allowed, to be honest. Sorry, Will. Ah, oh, damn. And then Aaron O'Connor asks, have you become legend? And that's a Destiny reference. Yeah, I think I became legend a couple of times, and then I stopped playing, but I was a bloody legend with a hand cannon at one point, so yay for me. Ben K asks, are your opinions different on previous board games now that you've gotten more experience in playing board games? Yeah, definitely. There's a few things I played earlier on that I thought were, were better than they were, and I've sort of since gone off a little bit from having having played more things. And also, you just play things too much. It's weird. It's a strange thing, I think, where like um, you often people say when they ask you what your favorite game is. With video games, often I'll think of things that I played years and years ago, um, maybe because I only played them once when I was younger. Whereas with board games, whenever people ask me what my favorite game is, a lot of time it's just one of the things I'm really into now. Especially because you know we go to GDC and stuff, go to conventions, you end up playing the same thing like ten times, and you know, yeah, as soon as much as you love it after you've played something 10 times you're probably done with it do you have any regrets as far as i reviewed this and oh man i totally have a different opinion now yeah i think uh well one of the first things i did for the site was a, a review of kings of tokyo i don't even know if it's still on the site proper it might be one of the old old blog things that got jettisoned yeah i think i felt a, a lot more positive to that than i do now huh fascinating i think just because i really like the chunky dice and i think it was a, a real thrill i don't think it's a bad game i definitely have less love for it now than i do other things last question this one's from alan girding and he wants to know how much writing do you do before you do your youtube videos because you're incredibly eloquent in your videos oh thank you very much it depends it really depends i usually try and just write notes rather than scripting things but sometimes you need to script when you're actually talking about a topic in detail uh, it's one of those things where you can't just fluff the words like every word needs to be the exact word that you've written otherwise the meaning changes you know when you're right. actually chained together quite complex sentences yeah in those cases those scripts do take a lot of time but a lot of the time i just write kind of notes and i just sort yeah. of play around with it until the cadence sounds right yeah because there definitely is a cadence to your videos you have a very definite style well my mother is a poet so she's a children's poet so i grew up with uh that's amazing yeah that's right but she's called jan dean check her stuff out she's a children's poet she's very good um but uh, yeah she she's always just saying things that sounded nice gotcha. uh, one, of her, one of her poems she wrote when she was called gloopty gloop chocolate soup which is just, yeah, just a lovely combination of words. So I think I grew up with that in my ears, sort of people just saying wow. things just because they sounded nice. And uh, I, I try and put that into my writing and my videos because I think it's a really powerful tool. We have already been talking for an hour, but do you think you have time for a little table talk? Yeah, sure. Let's do it! It's time for a table talk. This is where we talk about what we've been playing recently, and then we possibly give quick elevator pitches. Now, we don't have a lot of time, so we're going to try to keep this nice and tight. What have you been playing lately, sir? Lately, I've been playing, plugging through Pandemic Legacy, having a great time with that. I won't say any more because it's just spoilery, but gosh, it's a right. lot of fun. And I have been playing Paperback, and I really like that. Nice. Again, as I said, I'm, I'm That's I'm a deck new, builder, man. Yeah, I'm new to deck builders-ish, new-ish. I'm new to get, like, super into them, I think, is the thing. Because uh, Star Realms just blew me away. I got so into that. I downloaded the iPad app and then got really annoyed because it's really hard. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, but I want to win all the time. Uh, but yeah, Paperback is... 
it really kind of tickles all of my buttons because it's a deck builder that's also kind of crossed with Scrabble. And that's basically gotcha. it. It's that you, you write words and then you spend the points from those words. You're to already buy. kind of giving an elevator pitch for it. We yeah. could just make it official and. Sure. You want to do that? Yeah. All right. Well, this is a bit of improv. So let's see, I got to make this good. Now I'm nervous because <laughs> I want to make it good. Uh, you have to explain paperback within a minute in an elevator. You are an American that is also a big fan of Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Are you ready? And yeah. when you're ready, all you say is ding me, SBJ. Okay. Ding me, SBJ. You know, boy, I've been playing a game recently which is about words. And you get this deck and it gets it gets bigger as you go on. Not like my bank account, because you know what? Like that shit is off the fucking We need to make card games in America great again. And I know the man for this job. It's words. You gotta, you gotta make the words. You make them bigger. You spend your money in the bank, and your money in the bank actually gets bigger. Because honestly, those fat cats in Washington, right now, I just don't even, I don't even know. You know, they want my guns. You make these big words, and you gotta <laughs> tactically choose letters so you can make better, bigger words in the future. And it's, it's kind of a problem-solving thing, cross with a deck builder. It's, it's a use of language, and I think language and learning. Better big words, bigger b- words is a vital part of what's uh, vocab and, and making them good. Here we are. <laughs> uh, that was brilliant. I'm yeah. always reticent to do American accents for in front of Americans because I know what it's like when people do that with English. Yeah. Fantastic job. Hats off to you. Uh, paperback. Great game. I do have a couple questions on paperback. I have played it myself, but I think our listeners would want to know. Even though you haven't played a lot of deck builders, what do you think sets paperback apart from other deck builders? Well, I think it's just, it's just the, the, the central premise of it. There's a lot of fun side stuff you can play with. I really like the thematic thing wrapped around the core premise of you are a paperback writer. You can have a, uh, a theme. And, you know, there are things on cards, but you could just make your own on this. You could just play, like, a horror or, like, sci-fi. I mean, there's probably are some of the themes that it comes with. But you can play with a theme, which means if you then spell a word which um, everybody at your table agrees is, like, a, a word which makes sense and fits into that genre, then you get more points. Oh, sweet. I've never played with it that way. Yeah, and that's a really fun idea. And also, I like the fact that it's kind of, like, it makes it a bit more friendly and collaborative. And the fact that, like, you know, it's this thing of everyone has to agree. Like, you have, so it means you've kind of got to sell it to people of being, like, yeah, right. it's kind of like this. And also like the fact that if you can't think of a word and you're stuck, then you can choose to just put your cards face up on the table and let other people suggest things. And if somebody else suggests a word that you then use, they kind of get a little token, which counts as an extra point to buy stuff in the shop. So it's kind of like it's designed to encourage it to be a bit more friendly and a bit less cut. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I just love it because it, I've, I've always been a writer and I still am a bit, you know, writing scripts mainly, but um, I just enjoy it. Like it's, it's a fascinating combination to have a strategy in, in the, the art of building words. And It's a fantastic game. The criticisms that I've heard of it, I've had some friends say, this game's making me feel dumb, <laughs> dumb. <laughs> Well, that's true of Scrabble as well. Like, and admittedly, I did play Scrabble with my partner and her family once, and we, they just thought it'd be a fun thing to do. Let's play Travel Scrabble, and we played it, and I just destroyed them. It was just embarrassing for everybody, and it was one of those things where afterwards it was just like there was no talk of us playing again. It wasn't like, hey, should we do that again? It was just like that's that. So I think that's always the way. I think it is one of those games where it does 
it relies on a really specific skill set. It's like, do you know loads of words? And like, you know, not everyone should need to know loads of words. It's just if you're a writer, then it's useful. But with most jobs, you don't need to know all these words. So yeah, I get it. I get it. I wanted to do a timeout and just give you a sincere props for using the term partner because you've used that twice now. You said you live with your partner and you play with your partner. And the cool thing about it is how ambiguous and vague that is. So that could mean your business partner or a mate, or it could actually mean, you know, your lover, someone you're sure. in a relationship with androgynously. But I wish she's my fiance. I'm part of the LGBTQ community at my school. I run the LGBTQ Ally Council, and I'm part of Lambda, which is like the Gay Straight Alliance. Uh, and I have my wife as well, so not that it's anyone's business or anything, but total heterosexual. I've mentioned my wife before. You know, it's, it's funny because we teach, you should use the term partner more just because it's so friendly for people that um, may be afraid of judgment of their orientation. Yeah. So it's really cool that you do that because then when someone says partner, people normally assume, oh, that person must be a homosexual because they partner. So it, it reminds me like I should use partner as well. I just like it, you know. Um, I think it's one of those things where like, I partly use it because of that, I guess. And I mean, a bit... it's romantic. Yeah, because yeah, you're so. partners. I think so. Yeah. I think it's like it's one of those. There's lots of different terms you can use. But I think partner is, is the nicest one. And actually, you know, I've got lots of gay friends and they talk about partners. And it's, I just love it as a word because it really sums up for me what a relationship is about. Your partners, you know, you work, you work yeah. together. And like, you know, you, you, you're kind of a rely on each other so i just think it's a really nice way of doing it. but also it does have the other bonus i guess that mostly it's just gay people who use the term partner but i, I like using it because it, it sums up how i feel about our relationship and uh, it's also i guess it's cool because it does mean that sometimes people might think oh this person's gay and it's like well that's that shouldn't be a thing but like you know if people think that and then that's that's kind of on them um yeah yeah don't care at all. Think away. Think yeah, away but no, I, I try and use it because I think it's a shame. But I think uh, it's one thing that I know. I, I have lots of friends who are gay now. Like actually, two of the guys I record regular features with are, are gay guys. It's uh, two straight guys and two gay guys, and we've always been really proud of that. In the fact that it's kind of one of these things where we have a lot of people listen to it, and maybe 16, 17, a lot of them are like young gay people. And to just be able to listen to this podcast where it's just four guys all talking really candidly and openly about relationships and sex and stuff, but half of them being gay and half of them being straight. We found it's been really, we didn't expect this, well I didn't expect it, but we found it's been really beneficial for people to like, especially people having a hard time when they're young, Absolutely. to know that when you get older, like it's going to be cool. And you're going to have like straight friends who you'll be able to talk to about gay sex and they're not gonna freak out like it's yeah it's like things can be cool so i guess i'm more thoughtful about that stuff but also like i realize that because so much of straight relationships is is uh is kind of bound down in this historical significance of all these different things a lot of it is kind of bullshit a lot of it's really old tradition right and it's like right. it's actually really old shit that isn't cool or useful even stuff like getting married the idea that the groom makes a speech but the wife doesn't it's like what like what was that so i don't know wait like, that's a thing that's not I, I don't know of that in america where the groom gives a speech in the the bride the, the groom and the bride don't give any speeches oh really that. well in, in the uk it's just tradition that the groom gives a speech and then the, the wife doesn't nope. Best man and maid of honor give speeches in in our American. Oh, well, that's good that you even get maid of honor because in the UK it's just it's it's um, the father of the bride, it's uh, the the groom, and then it's the best man. So you don't even have any. Uh, Whoa! Anybody, really, unless you've asked somebody specifically to do it. So there's all sorts of bullshit like that. But also, I think it's really interesting that like the more I kind of um, know about the lives of my gay friends and stuff, I realise that it's kind of this nice thing. Whilst often you know gay communities also have lots of problems and still have lots of shit they have to deal with, it's kind of been cool that in a way they've 
being able to write the rules of, of relationships and stuff as a kind of a fresh. Yeah. And a lot of the way that um, my gay friends deal with relationships and deal with this stuff just seems like to make loads more sense than a lot of stuff. So I find it, I find it quite cool to, to kind of listen and learn from those things and, and maybe kind of identify stuff about, well, you know, traditional That's... straight relationships and go, well, hang on, why do we do it like that? Why can't we be a bit more like that? You know, so it's such an intriguing and romantic idea I haven't really thought of is that the traditions have really yet to be written as far as like the etiquette of gay partnerships. So yeah, that's that's really cool. Uh, we should get back on. Track. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a good time out, though. All right, so what have I played lately? Well, my list is big. This is just in the past week, as it usually is. But here we go. In no particular order, I've played Dragon's Head, Hats and Heroes. And those first two games, if you haven't heard of them, it's because they're my own. Those are prototypes. Nuns on the Run, Panic Station, Cause of Death, Ghost. Another one that I've, I've been working on. Yet, Curse of the Vampire, Vampire Hunter, and Two Rooms in a Boom. Now, did any of those tickle your fancy? There's a few of those. Yeah, I've actually I've got Panic Station, but I've never opened it. Oh man, what's it like? Do you want the elevator pitch? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, for? I'd like an elevator pitch, please. Uh, I'm gonna crash and burn on this. I hope you're not too embarrassed uh, to be it's on fine. the same podcast I, it's with me. Just oh, let me think. Who would you like me to be? Um, I think I'd like you to pitch Panic Station to me in the style of an estate agent trying to sell a polar research station which recently had to be cleaned up after everybody died in mysterious circumstances. <laughs> okay. All right, let me think about how I'm going to do this. So, Polar Station, real estate agent, selling it, everyone recently died. Okay, I'm ready. <sighs> Ding me, SBJ. Hey, welcome to this Polar Station. We're on our way down, and when we get there, I, I know you're probably going to see some blood stains and some aliens all over the place. Just don't worry about that because that adds to the authenticity. Now, here's what's really bizarre. As we go down this elevator, we're kind of going into Event Horizon where you magically split off into two beings. There's going to be you, and then there's going to be your android. It's going to be amazing. But for some reason, and we can't really explain why, your android can hold guns, but you can't. And for another reason we can't explain, if your android gets infected with an alien virus, you get infected too! Doesn't that sound fantastic? Where we're going in this polar station, it's constantly changing, so I'd love to show you each room by room, but I can't. It's secretly revealed as we flip over cards, and anytime you go into a room with someone, you've gotta trade with them. I can give you some bullets for your android's gun, or some gasoline to burn down the alien hive nest, but I could also give you a virus, making you part of the alien team. It's an amazing experience, and I can't wait to show you all the lovely architecture. Alien schmegma here and there, you won't find it anywhere else, and it's in this beautiful polar station. Ding! I just realized I was say, supposed to say ding after a minute or something, probably, wasn't I? Whoops. <laughs> Let's pretend that was exactly a minute. <laughs> no problem. That was no great. Problem. It sounds, as a game, it sounds really thematically messy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so horrible, man. Like, the... <laughs> I love the game. I played it a ton, and the rule book was quite a handful. It seems at first to be a hot mess, mm. but the game plays very beautifully because it has an emotional experience. After we played, we decided, let's play that again. 
and let's play that again. Mm. And that's a sign of a good game that we had these memorable experiences. But thematically, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's such a bugbear of mine now because there's so many thematically strong games. There's so many well-designed games that really now it's kind of like we, we've got pretty fussy about that in terms of like really what we want now is stuff which is thematically strong with design that matches the theme, um, which is hard to find. But I kind of figure there's so much stuff out there then you just sort of, you, why not have your cake and eat it? One of the fun things we did after we played the game is we went around the table with ideas on how to fix the theme. And one that seemed popular was people thought, oh, it would make sense if you were a hacker because it's weird that you have two separate entities that you both control, but if one of them gets affected, the other one gets affected, but you don't even share health, but you can share your items. Like, how do you explain that? Yeah, yeah hackers would work. Computer virus. Done. Yeah, my idea was that Event Horizon where I'm not sure if you're familiar yeah, with no, the I film, am. but it's just like it doesn't make sense. You make it Lovecraftian where somehow you've been split into two and somehow you can share items, but also you have separate health. Doesn't make sense. That's why it's creepy oh, as all hell. That's how you I mean people have asked me this question before because I love I love the Dark Souls and the Souls games. Uh, that's how you make the Dark Souls <gasps> board games. You make a game which just doesn't really make sense, but then you have like yeah. little bits of flavor text on all of the cards. And then maybe after you've played it like three or four times, you start to like have theories about what the hell the game is and what is happening. That'd be cool. We could have an entire podcast dedicated to Dark Souls. Oh, I know. Captain Chessbeard, he's getting pretty pissed over sure, here. And sure, he, it, it's, it's about time. Uh, Matt Lees, how can they keep in touch? How can they find you? How can they really geek on you like I've geeked Oh, that, where to start? As gross as that sounds. I guess, you know, going to shutupandsitdown.com, if you've never seen that site, you should really check it out. Um, I'm only partly a part of it, but gosh, it's all good. Very proud of all that stuff. And if you want to see some of the earlier stuff we were talking about here, I think there's still a section on the site that should be about the opener. That may change for reasons which will become clear in the next week or so. You'll see. Um, but otherwise, if you want to see the video game stuff I do, you can go to coolghost.net. That's my most recent stuff on there. But if you know, I say if you want to look at older stuff, it's really hard to work out where it all is in one place. Uh, video gamer stuff, you go to Video Gamers YouTube channel and, and filter it by things that got the most hits. There's still a bunch of the big kind of crazy viral things I did there. And I'm on Twitter if you just want to say hello, jam underscore sponge. I can't say I'll always reply to stuff on there because I get inundated with things. Just pop all over to any of these places and say hello. I'm, I'm usually pretty personable, as long as people approach me in a way which isn't massively aggressive. Cool. I'm Alan Girding. I'm lonely as hell, and I'll accept any friend requests on Facebook. <laughs> That's Alan Girding, A-L-A-N-G-E-R-DING, D-I-N-G. And you can also find me on the tweets at Alan Girding. If you want to write in to the podcast, you just send an email to podcast at Tuesday Night Games. That's spelled with a K. That's spelled with a K. This episode is... Over! Great, fantastic! Yeah, good, man. Come on.